mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice Welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show, Building the Collective Conscious, a show that is created to give space where your voice, ideas, and informed opinions can be heard, appreciated, and debated. I am Michael Eric Owens. And I am DT, and welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show. We are where? We're in Temple Benet. Oh man, this is so exciting, kicking off MLK weekend, right? Mike, I have to be honest with you, man. I'm a little disappointed. Disappointed. A little bit disappointed. What happened? I mean, my youth is showing, I guess, because I was listening to the bios, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, mine was not as long as yours <laughs> and the docs. Well, but trust you, me. you told me that we were going <laughs> to keep them short, and so I didn't get the memo. Well, part of that is age, my brother, so you'll, you'll, you'll definitely get there. We're, we're not alone. <laughs> we, we have a, uh, we want to say a studio audience. Let's hear some noise, folks. Yeah. Outstanding, outstanding. And it's such a special, special night. Uh, This program has been going on for many years, and to be part of it, um, we want to thank, of course, uh, Rabbi Harris for uh, having us come here, but also uh, NAACP, as well as Respect Diversity Foundation. Uh, I think all of these organizations continue to do enormously great things in our community. But we're not alone, D. We're not. We're not alone. We have somebody here at the table that's in the hot seat. Professor Johnson, welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show. Hi. I'm happy to be here, guys. (laughs) It made me a little nervous when it said I'm in the hot seat. (laughs) To see what happens. But but you know what? It's a friendly seat. And and tonight, we really want to take the conversation, I think, um, to a very honest place. Uh, we're, We're situated in this country, I think in a, in a very difficult situation, difficult times, difficult spaces. And tonight we want to talk about those difficult spaces, the many challenges that we face as Americans, as people. Um, and we don't wanna have a political conversation, but we wanna have a thorough conversation. And so I want to, first of all, start off uh, by simply looking at Dr. King, um, I want to demystify Dr. King. I think so many in the modern era see Dr. King as this docile figure that um, simply wanted to get along. But I think Dr. King had many deep things to say, and I would even say King was extremely radical. Professor, would you talk a little bit about the How do we demystify Dr. King? I think that when people talk about King, they start off with, oh, he was a very complex man. And that's the kind of statement you can give about almost anybody. But the question is, complex in what way? And as we move further away from the time of Dr. King, uh, as he was building his life and his legacy and his work, it makes people comfortable to recast King as uh, calm and peaceful, um, to take platitudes and make those of King's personality and use those to describe his work, his life, and his legacy. 
um, as the years go by, we try and create more differences between other figures that had political power during those times, like Malcolm X and King. And that's the great contrast that people try to um, create. But that's not always accurate. I think it's comfortable, but not always accurate. So I think we have to be aware of that as we discuss the life of King. Dr. King had a, I, I want to read a couple of quotes. Um, and we're going to get to this uh, speech that Dr. King uh, gave in um, March 14th, 1968 at Gross Point High School. And the professor's going to talk a little bit about how significant that place is. But a speech called The Other America. But King said, this is just a couple of quotes. King says, the price that America must pay for the continual oppression of the Negro and other minority groups is the price of his own destruction. That doesn't sound docile to me. Also, Dr. King says, the first thing I would like to mention is that there must be a recognition on the part of everybody in this nation that America is still a racist country. So those words were written in 1968 when King gave this speech in Gross Point. Um, and I'm familiar with Gross Point because I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. So Gross Point is a suburb. I went to high school in Gross Point, and it was the most um, homogeneous place I'd ever been at that point in my life. Um, Detroit, Michigan, when I was growing up, was 85% African American, and Gross Point was 100% non-African American. And so when I would make the commute to high school, I was frequently greeted by the police, and they would be ever so kind to escort me on a daily basis for four years from the freeway exit to the high school. They wanted to make sure I took myself to school and I wasn't causing any kind of trouble. But that's what happened every day. So that King gave this speech in 1968 in Gross Point is really interesting to me. It tells us about what the audience might have been like. Um, who might have been in the audience and how he might have come to be there. So the this divided nation that he talks about in this speech is very interesting and perhaps applicable even today, 51 years removed. So how do we do talk a little bit about how do how do we begin to examine this racist history that in so many people's minds have never really changed, right? This constant throughout history. Um, I was, I would say, you know, given the, the 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 speech itself, the generational relevance that it still has today, and then you're talking about your experience, um, you know, kind of experiencing this dualism or this internal conflict of what it's like to be African American in America, um, and a lot of people are just kind of blind to what that may be like, you know, for a person of color uh, to be in spaces, even even here, you know, the Jewish community and the black community have had a lot of history together in this country. And I'm just kind of grateful that we can continue that um, opportunity to expand that narrative. Um, but as far as just being able to have these kind of discussions where people who are open um, and willing to listen uh, is a great step in the right direction where we can all come and have some common uh, understanding about what's happening. Let's ask a tough question. Is America a racist country? So I, I see a lot of head nods. <laughs> I I think, I'm like, yes, 
yes, that's the answer. You know, um, let me just say this, Professor. Think about what has transpired in in black people, the police being called on because black people are in certain spaces in which it's not acceptable to be. As as simple as barbecuing, as simple as sleeping in the commons in a dorm area. Um, I think it's I think it's Maybe pretty even being in your own house. Yeah. <laughs> Being in your own house, right? Um, I, I, you know, it's what, what King was trying to deliver, and I think what we're trying to deliver today is that unless we acknowledge that we are in a racist society, how can we ever begin to solve the problem, right? But I think that takes courage, right? Because when you when you say we were in a racist society and all of a sudden I become unpatriotic. Yes, yes. I was in the Navy, you read my bio, right? Right, right. I've sacrificed for the country 13 years, right? Uh, but you, you, we hear that, right? We we're, are attacked for, I think, addressing the very issues that are tearing apart this democracy. Absolutely. And I think it's really hard to struggle with what does it mean that we're in a racist society. What does it mean and how do I as an individual, how do I work with that and how do I work within those structures? Because I think now we have racism, but nobody feels responsible. Because I didn't do anything, lady. I don't know what you're talking about, but I didn't do anything to anybody. I've been kind and gentle and charitable and I didn't do anything. And so I think we are in a society where racism is prevalent, but there's not a racist among us. So not I me. think that's a challenge, right? Because everyone feels like, it's not me, right? I didn't do anything, and what we all need to do is get over it and stop talking about it and stop making it a big deal. It's your problem. That's your problem. Cut it out. But it doesn't work that way, right? So if we can look around and see racialized outcomes we got to dig a little bit deeper, and that's what makes us uncomfortable. When we see things like um, the number of African-American children who by the third grade have been suspended from school, right? That number is huge. When we look at incarceration rates of African-American women, the number is huge. How do we explain that? We need to ask those questions, and when we answer questions in an easy way, we're really not trying to dig at some root causes. And we need to ask, does race play a factor? This idea of two Americas, King's speech, the other America. I ask you tonight, what America are you in? Which one are you living in? Now, share by the origin of your birth. I mean, none of us had any say-so on who our parents would be or, or you know, what color we would be. But by the origin of your birth, some have been given privilege more than others, right? So that places you in a certain America. The question, and I think this is what the professor was talking about, the question is whether you're going to stay in that America whether you recognize the other America and do something about it, be part of the change, right? But I think what you spoke to is this, this comfortability, mm -hmm. 
right? It's not my problem, you know. I'm good to go, right? I give to the United Way, right? (laughs) I went to the hospital and I rocked babies. (laughs) Right. And so it's, it's, I think, I think I want you to really ask yourself that question tonight. Which America are you in? Our country, you, I heard this all the time when, when, when President Obama was there. The country is more divided than ever. We heard that all, more divided than ever. We never pictured this, right? <laughs> that looked like unity, right? Compared to what we see now, right? So, folks, we're going we're gonna to take a short break here, and, and we're going to come back. But listen, I want you to really think about that question. Which America am I in? What are you doing about it? If you're among the privileged, I'm not mad at you for that. But you can truly give up some of that privilege. Folks, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. We're having a great time. Having a lot of fun. Where we at again? We're in the Temple Banana. Oh, man. We are having a great, great time. It's a lively crowd, too. Mm-hmm. Engaged. We have some questions. And uh, please, we, we want to hear from you. Uh, we created one mic to be a, um, to be a platform for your voice. And so we have some, some questions here. I'm going to give him the DT, let him put on some work tonight. All right. First question says, is there a society without racism? So I think that's a really great question because I think we do need to figure out um, what is aspirational, what's realistic, where we are and where we go. So I think when we think about racism, I think there are many societies that create distinctions among people based on skin color and other isms. I think the question is, are there places where races live in a harmonious way, right? Where people are not assigned negative consequences because of the color of their skin? And I think the answer is very few. And the countries that struggle to create unity, the one that comes to mind for me is Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, when we had Yugoslavia, um, had six different official languages. And they transacted their government in six languages. So when you would go to a setting where they are trying to pass a bill or to discuss things, everyone had on a headset and everyone spoke their native tongue as they tried to come up with resolutions to things. They accepted different perspectives and they tried to create harmony. But of course, that failed. So there have been numerous attempts for people to live in harmony, and you find racism even in nations where, to our eye, the American eye, the people look homogeneous. So it's interesting. I think racism is an issue all over the world. Um, 
The question is, how harsh are the consequences associated with race? And then what can we do to lessen the consequences? And, and I would add to that, what does it mean for a country that is built upon racism to overcome it? And I think we have to understand that America was built upon racism, not just to Africans, but native peoples and so forth. So if the foundation is draped in racism, how do you dismantle that and rebuild it? David, got something else? It says, please define America. <laughs> wow. Ralph Ellison said the problem with Americans is that they don't know who they are. <laughs> How can you define a people that don't know who they are? That's a great question, though. Define America. And, and you know why that's such a great question is because I think that's the struggle we have right now. I would kind of translate that to say who is the true American, right? With the immigration debate, right? With the historic injustices against black and brown people, right? The historic injustices against women, right? All right? So the question is who is the true American? And I think Mystically, we would say it is the white male, right? It's really interesting, too, because if you go back and you think about America as we think about the 48 contiguous states, right? We might want to define America in that way. But if you look at older maps and you think about how the nation has grown and we think about immigration and where people are coming from, we always weren't the 48 contiguous United States, there were places in North America that were occupied by people who now were telling they can't come to this land. I think that it's unusual to think about it in that way. If you were to look at a map and you go back and look historically, there are big sections of the United States that were part of Mexico. What does it mean now that we tell those people they can't come to these places? So I think it's interesting to look at the historical map as we think about defining America. You guys are pretty awesome. These are some great questions. Uh, the next one says, doesn't racism include persons of other backgrounds? What about reverse racism? When I think about racism, I think about a power differential. It's about power. Usually the um, people without power don't have the ability to exercise racism because they, they don't have anything that anybody wants, right? Racism, and, and therefore their perhaps petty or trivial acts are unimportant to the dominant person with everything. So, so it, it, reverse racism, I think there are a few tales about that, but I think those are more tall tales than actually I'm being oppressed by this situation. I would say that racism cannot survive without a system. And black folks don't create systems or enforce systems, right? I mean, when you look at the Supreme Court, you look at local governments, you look, you look around the country, you can see who's in charge. And so I think it's, it's very difficult um, I think the whole, in my, you know, again, people disagree with me all the time and hit me up on Facebook like so many other people do. 
and, uh, you know, say the things they need to. But I, I just don't think, um, I think the reverse racism argument um, is a red herring. Uh, doesn't exist. Uh, to your point, before we went to break about giving up the privileges, someone asked, uh, where do we go from here? How do we give up privileges? That, to me, is the biggest hurdle, right? I think that everybody recognizes, yes, there's something wrong in the system. What can I do to fix it? But if the discussion leads us to a place where I say the answer is to share, most people don't want to share. Most people, sharing is hard, even as adults, right? We've worked really hard to get what we have. And again, I already told you, I didn't do anything wrong, lady. So why I should share, I'm not sure. I think that becomes the hurdle in our discussion, right? And I think there's also some, um, how I want to say this, um, there's some behavioral shifts that can take place when you talk about giving up privilege. In other words, when I hear someone being, someone being racist at my job, I address that. When I see a black or brown person that's being discriminated against, it's not them, it's me, right? So you begin to think differently about your brother and your sister's keeper, right? And it's not so much of uh, really what I give up, but what I get engaged with. And so I think so many people um, don't understand that it's a behavioral shift and, and it's, it's about your actions not necessarily, you know, I don't know what they think you want to give me money or something that, that's giving up privilege or give me a car. Or something. I'll take a car. <laughs> Maybe, you know, I, it's you also, know, you know what I mean? It's, I think about what's the smallest thing. <laughs> you can thing, cash at me your privilege. Right, cash out. What's the smallest <laughs> thing that somebody could do, right? I want to help the situation. And in my mind, people want to do small things. I would say you would drive to another neighborhood and go to the CVS in that neighborhood. That's the smallest of things because you're going to CVS anyway. Pick the CVS in a different neighborhood than the one you live in because that will make that CVS um, carry more products. It will signal to CVS, the corporation, and other organizations there is a viable spending base here. Um, there's a difference between two different drug stores. I live on the northeast side. Northeast Quadrant, um, I tried to get a prescription for my little girl's acne. The prescription is $750. The store didn't have it. You know why? Because ain't nobody in the Northeast Quadrant spending $750 on acne medicine for the kid. But if I go to the pharmacy on, ML, on 23rd and Claussen, they have it on the shelf. right? So I have to wait seven days for it to come to the neighborhood that I live in. And insurance covers some portion, but clearly not enough. Let me just put that out there. <laughs> not enough. I didn't end up paying $750, but it's the difference in the wait time. So you can help to create a more robust economy in other neighborhoods by just small spending, by taking time to go out of your way. Not way out of your way, right? I'm not suggesting that, but it makes a difference. Right? Let's take a couple more, Dean. How do we hold our elected intolerant leaders accountable? Intolerant. We talked about that <laughs> word, tolerance, right? Yeah, intolerant. Um, 
I, I take it this person is not happy with our elected leader, elected <laughs> officials. Well, I think it's like anything. It's like activism. It's like anything. Um, you put enough pressure, um, people will bend. I think that um, you have to be active. Um, you have to come together. It's about the collective voice. And then you have to vote people out of office. I don't think it's, you know, we, it's not a quick fix. And I think sometimes we get, I think sometimes, you know, we get short-sighted because we, we want things to happen today. But these are long-range strategies. I mean, look what just happened with, with all the women getting elected into Congress and across. The, that was a long-range strategy, right? And now we got some different folks <laughs> talking some different language that's making some other people kind of nervous. I kind of like it, though. I kind of like it. I think, I think it's interesting to see what plays out in this new energy that's coming in from truly marginalized women in our society that have been empowered with their voice. And I say, go ahead. You know what? Make waves. Let's <laughs> listen. Blaze um, the trail. You know, you know, uh, Prince said, uh, one time, I, I do like Prince, but Prince said one time, <laughs> he said, you know, it's time to share the land. And I truly believe that, uh, it's time for this country to change. And it's going to take those that have been outside of the political process, not those that are not politically active, but those who have been outside the political process to come speak truth to power. And guess what? Bring about a change. We're going to, let's take one more question and we're going, we're going to take a break. All right, let me lighten the mood for a second. <laughs> All right. What is the gift children bring? What is the gift children give to bring us together? Wow. Um, suffer the little children to come unto me um, out of the mouth of babes. I think, um, you know, if you ever see children play together, you understand the purity of relationships and love, right? A child has to be taught to hate. Taught. Okay. They have a teacher, a sire. Um, and what can we learn? <laughs> Man, it's the purity in the fact that we all inhabit the same planet. We all want the same things for ourselves and for our family. Absolutely. When I hold up my baby, I have the highest hopes and aspirations, just like everybody else. But I'm going to tell you the gift that my baby brought me. Mm. She was six years old and she came home and she goes, Mom, why is it that African Americans are not as beautiful as white people? Mm. So that knocked the wind out of me. Mm. Because everybody wants their child to feel as beautiful as you perceive them to be. So while children are pure and they are wonderful and we need to pay close attention, they also reflect mm. the society. Mm -hmm. And they reflect it at a very young age. So I asked my little girl, what makes you think that? She goes, oh, well, mom, you can just tell. And I'm African-American. Her father's African-American. We got African-American art. I thought I had all the bases covered. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, honey, 
let me just explain it to you. She said, okay, with her big eyes. She sa- I said, well, you'll get to decide what beauty is if you have all the money. Beauty is a function of the economy. Mm. So the people who control the economy and advertising, they get to say what beauty is. And if you had that power, wouldn't you be the most beautiful person? I said, so let me give you an example. Who's the most beautiful woman in Africa? What do you think? And my little girl, her eyes sparkled. She says, an African-American woman? Well, okay, you know, the answer is no, but that's as close as we could get, right? She's only six. And I said, absolutely. It's about the economy. Now, I just bring this up because in my home, I'm sure-footed and quick-witted. I could come up with that answer. But there are a lot of African-American children who feel minimalized or marginalized in some way who are not having that conversation at home because they don't know how to have that conversation and their parents aren't as quick-footed. Those are the minority children. In the white homes, that conversation doesn't happen at all because those children feel beautiful and confident and their parents are not saying, honey, I just want to remind you, you don't look any better than an African-American child. That, that conversation doesn't happen. So to me, that tells us about racism. No one told her that, but somehow she was able to pick it up. That's wow. what we need to worry about. Yeah. Folks, we're going to take a break. Y'all feeling all right out there? We'll be right back. Thank you for downloading this episode. Here on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play Music, or whatever podcasting library you're listening to this show on, please rate and review. Those reviews and ratings help us tremendously. We thank you. All right. Yeah, I feel that, dude. You feel that? I do now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We... We can't dance in here, can we? You can it's against, the, against can, the rules. You can tap okay. your foot a little bit. We don't want to do that. <laughs> Shoulder shrug. Shoulder one dance. Time. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's 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 so nice to be here tonight and uh, to be kicking off MLK and the celebration commemoration of his life of his legacy. Um. You know, few have paid the price that he did at such a young age. I think we forget that or we don't embrace that idea totally. Many of us in this room have lived many years beyond Dr. King. He did not have that luxury. So he left us with a struggle. He left us with a fight. 
and you can read his words and it seems like he's still speaking to us now. It's so relevant. Um, so I asked you a question before. Which one of those Americas were you in? D, did we get a question? Somebody answered. Did somebody answer that on one of the cards? No? No. Okay. I think that's a tough question. Define America was the question. We want to go back to that one? <laughs> okay. How can we challenge the intellectual laziness that leads us to stereotype people and put them into neat categories? Mm. Mm. That's a great question. I think we have a lot of unconscious bias. And I think humans are programmed to sort quickly. It's a survival mechanism, right? You have to be able to identify where people fit. And if you have children, you can probably remember a phase where your children were just compulsively trying to assign things to categories. So that's what we do. So I think that we need to accept that we have a cup full of unconscious bias. And the first step to recognizing your unconscious bias is to accept that it's there and to slow down. We act from our bias when we are rushed. And there are many times when we're trying to make split decisions, when we feel pressure, that's when we make mistakes, right? So I think we can help our unconscious bias if we slow down, when you're making a big decision, you're trying to decide between two job applicants, one that's just like you and one that's different, it might be beneficial to write a list. Because as you write your list, your pro and con list, what you're really looking for, that makes you slow down and that also engages your mind as opposed to the unconscious part that's trying to help you make a decision. So. I think the first step is to slow down and to ask, what are you really looking for? That's helpful. But so many times in this busy world, we're rushed and we're distracted, so we're messing it up all the time. So we got to try and slow down. There's also some evidence that mindfulness exercises can help bring about a slower pace. So you might want to work on that. There might be mindfulness exercises that you can practice in your own individual life that could help you. You should seek to gain exposure to different people. Right? Go someplace different. Go to a different store. Try and shop on Klassen and 23rd for the week. How does your table look different at home? Try a different type of worship service, maybe in a different language. Watch a movie about a different culture. All of those things enhance exposure that you might not get in your everyday life, but it can be so beneficial. Let me, let me turn our attention again to Dr. King's speech. Dr. King points out in this speech that um, the idea um, that is the arguments that are made against black and brown people because of their condition one is, is that they just need to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. Right? Yep, that's one of the arguments. And in the text of King's speech, he talks about um, it's just not that simple. And one of the reasons is that um, the color of the skin has been stigmatized. 
And then we see that stigma flowing throughout our linguistic heritage. Um, if somebody, I want to prohibit you from getting something, I'm not going to whiteball you. I'm going to blackball you, right? Someone in your family does something bad. They're not the white sheep, but the black sheep. So King, in this speech in 1968, goes through an entire litany of these things. Um, and he says it seems simple, but it's a continuation of the stigmatization of the coloring, and that's significant. Hmm. So uh, he talks about the African-American experience being unique, that other immigrants surely have come here and have done well and have done differently, but those other immigrant experiences are wholly unique because those people were not brought here in bondage um, and held for 350 years. That other immigrants have different experiences. So the speech is compelling in that way uh, that this bootstrapping theory is not valid. <laughs> you know, when you were talking, I was thinking of the uh, African-American artist Tehinde Wiley. Do you know him? Um, he had an exhibit at the Oklahoma City Museum. He takes these, he goes to a city, he finds just an average person, takes them in and he paints them in these iconic portraits. Uh, and, the, and I was on a panel for one, was Napoleon uh, leaping over the Alps. And I was in the, in the, most of the crowd was white. And I, I asked him, how do you think about this picture? They said, oh my God, this picture is beautiful. It's amazing. Now, get it. There's a black guy on a horse. His hat is cocked to the side. His pants is leaning. You know what I mean? You know, he, he, you know, he just looked like a brother that's out there in fashion, right? Um, and I said, to, I said to them, I said, you say it's beautiful because of context. But what if you were walking down the street and he was coming towards you? How would you feel? I challenged them. I said, the next time you see someone that dresses differently than you, which is a self-expression of the culture, right? Um, I want you to think of that picture, right? Because that individual, whether it's on that horse or not, has value and is beautiful, right? And so the skin, right? The skin thing, our obsession with skin. It's all the same, right? I mean, I don't think my skin's any different than our sister up here, right? We, we got the same, just happens that I guess I have a little bit more pigment, you know what I mean? But why are we so obsessed with that as being a marker for value, for being a marker for success? For opportunity. Opportunity, respect. Simply because of that pigment or lack thereof. It seems silly, doesn't it? It seems foolish. But we live in a society based upon it. Wow. That's shocking. Governs us. Governs us. I live in a historic neighborhood, and when I bought my home, there's a covenant in my deed that says if you sell your house to somebody of, of African descent, 
or if you let somebody like that live in your house, that the developer could come and take the house back. So as I was buying the house, because I'm a, a lawyer, I read everything. <laughs> I said, well, excuse me, I just want to let y'all know I'm black, and I believe probably there's some African descent, and I just need to make sure y'all get this, right? And the woman says, oh, it's just, just a historical document. It's, it's, I'm like, okay, well, I just need to let you know that I don't read this piece of paper. So it really is so much the basis of who we are. And you can think about the era of Jim Crow laws. People were actually trying to be together, white people and black people. Thus, the need of all the many laws to keep us apart, such as the textbooks used by the African-American children the Negro children had to be stored in a different location than the textbooks used by the white children. They were exactly the same. But we are obsessing over many things as we seek to keep us apart from one another. It wouldn't be a need for the separation of the books unless we're trying to create the separation of the people. Let's take a couple more questions it says, what impact do you feel social media plays in widening or closing racial divides? Mm. That's a really <laughs> good question. And we, we've, talked, we've talked about this on the show. Uh, I think, I mean, it's, and in one way, social media has allowed for this connectiveness between people from different backgrounds, cultures, countries, so forth. And in another way, it's allowed for, I'm going to say the guy in his underwear at his computer to spew as much racism as he wants, right, without any accountability, right? Um, but then on the other hand, it has exposed what we knew was going on already, <laughs> Right. Uh, when people say to me, man, I can't believe there's so much racial profile. I'm like, well, I'm glad you got a smartphone. Now, you know it. Right. No, since I was about eight. <laughs> but 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 I think it's 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 bittersweet. Um, what social media brings to the table. Right. But it definitely um, gives us a platform, a voice that you wouldn't otherwise have unless you were in a pulpit, at a microphone, doing a speech. It gives the average person a voice. And I, and I think for that, I'm, I'm grateful for social media. Do you have something you want to say? Uh, I would also say social media may desensitize us to certain issues because as they become more readily available, constant news, uh, you just kind of want to turn yourself off to that information. It's like, uh, I'm just going to go play the Xbox. <laughs> you know, I don't want to deal with the issues that are, are plaguing our society or uh, coming across my timeline every single day. So that's what I would also add. That maybe social media can sometimes be uh, an ill because of, you, can, you can turn your phone off. You can decide not to engage. So um, that's what I would, I would say about that. Uh, it says, what would you do if you saw someone or heard someone be racist to someone white? Hmm. You know, I very rarely experienced that. Um, you know, there's 
there's um, a joke that says, how do you, how do you offend a white person? Just call them a white person. <laughs> and so, I mean, other than the, with the slurs that I won't mention, you know, I've, I've very rarely been in that situation, but I would, I would definitely myself say something. Um, so I, I feel the same way. I, it has been exceedingly rare. So I teach at an institution that's predominantly um, white. And, um, and I have great relationships with students, and we talk to one another quite frequently. Um, but I have a, a tolerance for everybody, and better than a tolerance, I'm working toward embracing everybody. So if someone is with me, if they are in my earshot and they say something that is disrespectful based on race, gender, class, ability, all of those things, I'm friends to everybody. I step right in and I'm able to do that because I have privilege and power in my workspace and I'm able to take some corrective action. So I have heard something um, being said negatively about a white student and I went right to the dean as I would as if something were being said negatively about a Native American student. So I treated it in the exact same way because it's important and we're trying to build community. We're not trying to hurt one another. So I take that ethos with me everywhere. And I think when those situations arise, I almost call it an opportunity because I think it is an opportunity um, to teach that person about who you are. Because they, usually people say racist things around you because they think you're comfortable with that racist statement. Right? And that's a teachable moment. Most recently, a young woman <laughs> said in front of me, she said, oh, professor, I was on a study abroad trip. I was in Grand Cayman. Oh, professor, come out with us because we're going to get white girl wasted. I said, well, you know, I ain't never done that before. <laughs> but we need to talk because that sounds negative to me. And I don't, is it, is it something different than just plain old wasted? <laughs> Because if it's just plain old wasted, just say that. We don't need the gratuitous use of race to describe what we're doing. So we had that discussion. And that's, and, and that's, that's the opportunity I'm talking about. Because when you correct people, then they learn who you are. And that's never coming your way again. No. Because a racist person does not want to portray themselves racist around somebody that is not. Right? And so next time, realize this person really don't know me. So now it's time for me to educate this person on who I really am. Right. This is pretty important right here. It says, what do I do about a racist family member? And anybody else, I refuse to condone that behavior. I try to educate, but their mind seems too infected. Um, my moral obligations are constantly tested. Y'all not going to like this answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you like this. Just because somebody is related to you don't mean that you have to have a relationship with them. I'm going to tell you that. Listen, <laughs> I, I'm, I feel very strongly about this. I don't care whether it is a parent, a sibling, a cousin. If you have made yourself crystal clear 
that you do not want to hear that or participate in that and they continue to bring that into your life, why would you continue to endure that? You're not, and hold on, hold on, Professor, I'm going to hold that thought. You're, I feel strongly, because you're not, I hear people, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to try to change. You ain't going to change nobody. People change through experiences. People change when, when certain things happen to them, right? We can't change anybody. But it says more about, if you stay in a relationship with someone that is a racist or a bigot simply because they are family, that says more about you than them. I think that's such a hard question. It is. But I challenge you to think about it. What if it wasn't racism and what if the mm. person were abusive mm -hmm. in some way? Somehow, because it's race, we're more willing to give someone a pass. There, there are a list of things that in our lives we are not going to tolerate. That should be on the list if we really feel that strongly about it. Now, you know, if we're just lukewarm on racism, ah, well. But that's his that's uncle Jack. We, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's okay. I, I'm not going to take that like home with me. Been like that since he was five. No. Uh-uh. So we got to decide where it fits, where it fits in our life. Okay, uh, this is kind of. Um, do you believe that some African Americans play the victim card too often? Great question. I'm going to let you answer that, D. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, it's really challenging, you know, because as a, as a black man um, in America, you know, I find myself, you know, having to defend my experience a lot, you know, to people who don't share my experience having to use my black brain to defend my black body and my black experience. <clears throat> and so for somebody to tell me that that's not happening to me, it's strange to me. And it's really, it really makes me feel like, you know, those people are not, not there yet um, or not aware of life or in tune with all of the possibilities that can be created in, the, in, the, in a life experience. And so, um, any person of color that is being victimized um, and they tell you that, believe them. <laughs> um, I think the more that we are having these conversations, I mean, the more real it becomes because it's just not stories that you hear in the news. These are real people that these things happen to. And that's, that's kind of the reality of it. And sometimes it's hard for people to take the reality and accept it. Um, rather or not, this person is playing the victim or not, you know, something is happening and we need to be conscious, conscious enough to address it and uh, be aware of it. And, and that kind of reminds me of the idea of always playing the race card. You hear that, that uh, black people are playing the race card. Um, I don't, well, I, let me just speak for myself. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm being discriminated against or I'm, be, I'm being viewed that I have less value um, than others around me. So when I express that, it's because I feel that way. And if that's playing the race card or being a victim, um, then I, I say, so be it, because it is how I feel. 
And I think um, the question to, um, I, I, would, I would say this, the person, and, and again, I just want to say this for analytical purposes, but for the person that wrote that, would you want to switch places with a black person? If, if, if that ever comes, would you want to switch places? And I, and I think a lot of people would say, no, I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all right. right. Um, you know, uh, we have to be really careful that we don't overlook the experiences of anyone. I mean, that's, that's the whole move, Me Too movement, right? Women coming forward, going, well, how, how could, uh, it's been 30 some, what does that matter? How many of us don't remember tragic things that have happened to us 30 years ago? Okay. Um, like D said, I think it's very important that we give people the space to express their experiences. Whether we agree or disagree with it, we accept it. And by accepting it, we validate that that is their experience. I, I just want to say... I am an African-American woman of a certain age with a house and a job and cars and a dog and all of the stuff that anybody in my lineage has come before me could ever have dreamed of. As far as anybody in my background, I have really made it. I feel victimized. If I were to say daily, it wouldn't be an overstatement. I am victimized frequently. And there are things that happen to me because I live in a situation where I am almost being terrorized. And I know that sounds crazy for a lot of people. I used to go to the gym early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. I stopped going to the gym early in the morning because during my drive down Lincoln, it dawned on me. If I got stopped by the police and shot in the street, they'd be able to erase the tape and nobody would know about it. I got pulled. I didn't get pulled over. I was driving down Lincoln, and I had my two kids in my big soccer mom car, and the police got behind me with no lights, and nothing happened. But the first thing that came to my mind is, I hope they don't shoot me in front of my kids. And that's how I feel. And I think that that's being victimized. And I have done nothing wrong. I am a good person. I do this, and I, I give you a list of stuff. <laughs> But I feel afraid. Mm. So am I playing the victim card? Nope. I get up and I get dressed and I go to work every day and I try and be a role model and I try and come here and be honest. But the idea that black people are playing the victim card, maybe somebody is. But I would also ask you this. How's that working out for African Americans? Mm. If the race card was so good and the victim card was so great, wouldn't we be in a just much better condition overall? So being victimized, yep, all the time. The reason my little girl thinks she's not as beautiful as some other little girl, that's a form of being victimized. When the teacher calls me and says, I don't know if your kid's cut out to be in this school, Ms. Johnson. What you talking about? That's being victimized. The idea that I fell down one time and the owner of the store came and they said, oh, do you want us to call EMS? I said, yes. And he goes, oh, well, we'll call somebody. What do you do? And I said, I'm a lawyer. 
And he said, who you? Mm. What's that about? What's up with that? Yeah, me. I know when people look at me, they don't see a lawyer. They see an artist or a homeless woman or whatever people think. But, right? Victimized? Frequently. I find that people love to tell me what to do. Mm. Right? I I can't go anywhere without some seemingly helpful, usually older white man trying to give me direction. Leave me alone. I got this. Victimized. Mm. Mm. Wow. Wow. True, true, true experience. And um, folks, it has been an amazing night. And and what we're going to do, we're going to take some of your, uh, well, we're going to take the rest of the questions and we will address them on our uh, podcast next week. Yes, sir. And so, so you're going to have to listen in, right? <laughs> Y'all need to go to YouTube uh, and uh, follow us, One Mic, One Voice. Spotify. They go to YouTube, you can subscribe. That way when the podcast pops up, it comes directly to you. Uh, I tell you what, it's been a fascinating night for us to be here. Um, commemorating Dr. King. We have a lot of work to do, but it's so encouraging to know when I look out at these faces that we are not working alone. We are working together, right? Because history will speak of us. Somewhere in the distant future, a scribe will reach down deep into the archives of our time and what Will she find, will she discover that we overcame our differences? Will she find that out of many, we became one? Or will she find that we solved nothing and remain a divided people? Yes, history will speak of us. We can make a difference if we try. We can be the change that's in our life. All we gotta do is work together. We gotta raise our children better We gotta stop the hate, stop the hate And spread the love One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice You can change the world, it's your choice One mic, one voice you can change the world, it's your choice, your choice. Thank you for downloading the One Mic, One Voice show. This episode is brought to you by Blacken Studios. To learn more about Blacken Studios, go to blackenstudios.com or visit their Facebook page. The views and opinions of the One Mic, One Voice podcast show do not reflect the views of Blacken Studios or our other sponsors.